Welcome to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We're glad that you have chosen to join us this week as we take a look at the author's perspective of this quarter's Sabbath School lesson. And this week we are looking at lesson number 12, and it is called The Call to Stand, a very interesting passage that we're going to be looking at this week. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for being with us today as we once again open your word and seek a message from you. As Paul has been so encouraging and inspiring to us this quarter, we ask that he would continue to to do the very same to us today. We ask that your spirit would touch our hearts and our minds as we seek to understand your will for our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're grateful to have with us once again this week the author of this quarter's Sabbath School lesson, Dr. John McVeigh. He's the president of Walla Walla University. John, welcome back again. It's good to be back. So we're at week number 12 now, and we're looking at a call to stand. Paul has meddled with us a little bit. Mm -hmm. He's given us some inspiration. He's challenged us. And now it sounds like there's a real challenge as we get toward the very end of this book. We're in chapter 6 now, and it, yes. there's no chapter 7. So, so we're getting down to the meat of things. And here in chapter 6, in verses 10 through 13, there is indeed a call to stand. And he starts in verse number 10 with, Finally, my brethren. So he's, he's built up to this. Yes. And now he says, Finally, yes. my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then he starts talking about putting on the whole armor of God. How would we kind of break down these, this passage that we're looking at sure. into sections? Well, we have, we have two weeks of uh, lessons on this magnificent passage, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. It would be easy, uh, Eric, to think that this is kind of a decorative flourish at the end of the letter. It uses strong language, a, a military metaphor, to describe Christian discipleship as we look forward to the return of Jesus. It's striking in its thoroughness with which Paul works out this, this metaphor, that the church is the militia of Christ, uh, equipped with God's power, equipped with God's weaponry to go forth on the fields of, of battle. And uh, it's, it's striking, isn't it? There's good reason why it's very popular. People frequently turn to it and, and ponder this passage. But I would argue that it's not just a decorative flourish at the end. Uh, Paul is doing something very important here. He's gathering up a lot of themes that he has already addressed in the letter, and he's including those themes in his conclusion. And he is not talking about a lone soldier suiting up to do battle, but he's talking about the church under the figure of the army of God, the militia of Christ, going forth to wage peace in the world. It is then a, an appropriate conclusion to the, the epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, he, he chooses a specific genre in which to write this conclusion to the letter. And it is the genre of an eve of battle speech. Now, in ancient battle literature, we have many examples of eve of battle speeches. It was understood to be a commonplace that on the eve of battle, 
the general would step onto the battlefield and would exhort the troops and say, stand up for your country, be strong, the gods are with you, and all this kind of, of, of battle language. And so Paul is giving an eve of battle speech. He's using a particular genre to communicate his conclusion to the epistle of the Ephesians. So we've got an eve of battle speech, and he kind of breaks this down into a a few different sections. He does. What do those look like? So he gives this uh, this first call to arms in verses 10 to 12. Now, in this week's lesson, we're particularly studying verses 10 through 13, because in verse 13, he reissues this battle cry. But the call to arms is verses 10 through 12. It's pretty general. Uh, but it has wonderful themes about depending upon the power and the panoply of God, the the head-to-toe armor that God provides. And then in verses 13 through 17, he reissues the call to arms, but he does so now in in a more detailed way. He imagines believers as soldiers uh, putting on the armor of God. And he gives us examples of various kinds of implements, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation or victory, and, and, and so on. And those are donned by the Christian warriors, the, the church. It's donned by the church in sort of the same order you would expect that a Roman legionary might put on the, the armor. And then uh, you come to the call to prayer. So the call to arms, verses 10 to 12, the call to arms reissued, verses 13 through 17, and then the call to prayer, verses 18 through 20, where Paul asks the believers to pray and where Paul asks them to pray for him. And that probably, as we'll study a bit more uh, next week, that's probably not a, not a separate weapon, but it probably is part of the whole battlefield setting because Roman soldiers frequently prayed to the gods, you understand. Sure. They, they would pray to multiple gods. Correct. We, of course, are recognizing that there's one god. When Paul does this, when he, he paints this picture of the soldier, is this, you mentioned that in history this was something that was commonly yes. done. Yes, uh, What about in Old Testament times? Do we see any, any similarities there that might lead Paul to, to paint this word picture for us? You know, he borrows much of his theology, the, and he, the language of this battle speech seems to echo with the Old Testament battle speeches, and there are quite a lot of these. Uh, one of my favorites is Deuteronomy 20, verses 2 through 4. Let's have a look at that one, because I think it nicely illustrates uh, the genre of battle speech as it occurs in the Old Testament. So, uh, Moses here is giving instructions, laws about warfare. Here's, here's how you're to behave in war, okay? So he talks about, uh, in, in verses 2 through 4, battle speeches that are to be given. And when you draw near to the battle, so eve of battle speech, if you will, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, Today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. You get the flavor of that? 
So then when you, when you turn and you read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So there it is, the the battle call echoing these uh, deep spiritual concepts from the war cries and the, the battle speeches of the Old Testament. Trust in God, even when the army looks bigger, looks like it's more numerous than, than your own. Have faith in God and his presence with you and his provision for victory. You know, speaking of the Old Testament and, and perhaps facing a foe that outnumbers you and maybe has uh, better trained soldiers and, and more of them and better mm-hmm. weapons and so forth, that, that's one thing. But then we get here to what Paul says in verse number 12, and he says we're not even wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the rulers <laughs> of the darkness of this yeah, world. Yeah. That's a whole nother yeah. level. That and, is. and there might be a temptation to start, well, to, to continue the, the illustration here, shaking in your boots. Absolutely, in your in your hobnailed boots, in your hobnailed, hobnailed boots. battle military sandals. That's yeah. right, because you're not even Correct. fighting human beings here. Absolutely, it's a much more powerful foe. It, but I I'm getting the impression that Paul doesn't expect us to be afraid in this, but maybe to to redirect our thoughts, our attention. Yes, the 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 passage is balanced. It it certainly does not hide the foes and and sort of slough them off into the shadows. We, they're identified here. Paul puts them before us, but he puts before us the even grander and greater uh, work of God and his provision for us, his presence with us, and his weaponry. Uh, it's a little bit like that, that story in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, where you remember the king of Syria is having some trouble because there's this guy, this prophet named Elisha, who seems to know all the secrets. Can't, he can't plan anything. He can't plan an ambush. Uh, one of his courtiers tells him, why, hey, Elisha, Elisha tells, tells everything that even happens in your bedroom. Oops, you know. And so he's obviously, the king of Syria is upset about this. He says, well, where is this guy? And they say, in Dothan. And so he sends his army, of course, to Dothan, Elisha's servant gets up the next morning, kind of cleans the sleepy eyes out of his face and washes his face a little bit and then looks out over the city wall. Here's this vast army. Alas, my master, what should we do? Alas, what in the world are we to do? And we find ourselves a little bit like that in Ephesians 6, don't we? But uh, Elijah prays for him that, that God might open his eyes, and he does open his eyes. The servant steps to the rampart again. This time the veil has lifted between time and eternity, if you will. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. And we need that same kind of miracle in our own vision. That's what Paul's really saying here. He's praying that the Spirit might grant us to see really what is happening in the great controversy. And yes, there's this great 
massed army of supernatural forces, but look a little higher and see the gleaming chariots of God. And we as human beings have a a nasty tendency to do a lot of looking horizontally yes, and not nearly as much looking vertically as would be healthy for us. And, uh, and that's something that Elisha's servant had an opportunity to do. And it's something that we really have an opportunity to do as well. As we face the challenges and struggles in this life, we have opportunities to remember that God is on our side and that he is the one who can ultimately bring the victory. That's something that Paul, through the book of Ephesians, has been endeavoring to help us understand. And speaking of the book of Ephesians, you want to make sure that you pick up this book called Ephesians. There are not many weeks left in this quarter. If you have not yet picked this book up, I would encourage you to do so quickly before it disappears. It is written dot shop. Look for Ephesians by John McVeigh. We're going to come back in just a moment as we continue to look at the call to stand. We'll be right back. Two churches, two wildly different reputations. One was described as an open door and a pillar in God's temple. The other was compared to Jezebel, the famous pagan queen who persecuted the prophet Elijah and led Israel into idolatry. One church was given only words of encouragement and praise in John's inspired letters. The other was issued a stern call to repentance. So what do these two churches have in common with each other? And what do they have in common with the church today? Don't miss the next episode in the Seven Churches of Revelation series, Fire Tyra and Philadelphia. Learn what it means to be a church worthy of receiving the morning star. The Seven Churches of Revelation, Thyatira and Philadelphia, brought to you by It Is Written TV. You know that at It Is Written, we are serious about the study of the Word of God, and we encourage you to be serious about God's Word also. Well, I want to share with you another way that you can dig deeper into the Word of God, and here it is. It is written dot study. Go online to itiswritten.study and you can access the It Is Written Bible Study Guides, 25 in-depth Bible studies that will walk you through the Bible. It's going to be good for you, and it's the sort of thing that you will want to tell somebody else about so that they can dig deeper into the Word of God and come to know the things of the Bible intimately. As you get into the It Is Written online Bible study guides, you'll understand the prophecies of the Bible, the plan of salvation, and more. So don't forget, itiswritten.study. Itiswritten.study. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 6, and we're spending a little bit of time here, John, looking at the armor of God, or at least the introduction to this. We're going to spend some time next week delving into it a little bit more deeply. Sure. But in verse 11 and in verse 13, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God. What is this this armor of God? Why does he use this phrase? What's encapsulated in it? Well, I once made one of those little discoveries in, in Bible study that really brightens and lightens, and you feel like a shaft of light has come down 
from heaven because I always understood this to mean the armor of God. I understood it to mean the armor which God provides, you know, 41 regular fits and so on and so forth, Uh, that it's customized for you and it's armor that God provides to you. But then I was I was reading about the passage and uh, and, and learned that Paul seems to be reflecting on and using Isaiah fifty nine verse seventeen, and if you go to Isaiah uh, fifty nine verse seventeen, it's another one of these passages we've looked at one or two before where uh, the Lord Yahweh is portrayed as the divine warrior stepping onto the scene of history. In this case, he's upset at his own people because he's not seeing that they are doing justice as he would expect. And so uh, there's no man to intervene, and so he himself dresses in the armor of a warrior and steps onto the stage of history to right the wrongs. You get the basic scenario here, the basic plot. So Isaiah 59, verse 17, reads this way, He, the Lord, Yahweh, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. It almost sounds as if he's quoting Paul. It it almost sounds that way, doesn't it? So, the question is, do any of those implements sound familiar, see? And so then when you go back to Ephesians chapter 6 and you read this phrase in verses uh, 11 and 13, put on the whole armor of a god, it has new meaning because this isn't so much the armor that God provides. Of course, he does provide it, but it isn't so much the armor he provides as it is God's own armor. We are armed in God's stuff. Uh, He equips us with his own weaponry. And I find that insight rather exciting. And to me, it adds to the whole tenor of the passage, which is, yes, we fight against (laughs) very powerful, very dark, very scheming foes led by a wily devil. Well, that's, that's all true. But the whole tone of the passage is one of confidence in God, Confidence in God's presence with us. Confidence in the armor of God. And the fact that it is God's own stuff in which we're equipped suggests the outcome of the battle will be very positive and the militia of Christ will indeed win the victory. That's a a very powerful picture and a a change, a shift in view of where this armor comes from and, and to whom it actually belongs. Very powerful. Now, when we talk about this battle that's going on between light and darkness, good and Mm -hmm. evil, Mm -hmm. uh, you'll frequently hear people talk about spiritual warfare. Yes. Um, How does that figure in? What is spiritual warfare? What is it not? What misconceptions might there be? And, And where do we fit into this battle? Where should we fit into this battle so that we don't end up entering into battles that we shouldn't be entering into. Yeah, so uh, many people, when they talk about spiritual warfare, are are talking about something that we might call by a synonym titled deliverance ministry. So it concerns individuals who have become so um, uh, uh, taken over by evil powers and spirits in a very personal way 
that they have lost their own will, and we might describe them as being demon-possessed. Now, this is, of course, a complex phenomenon and occurs in some other parts of the world very, very frequently, uh, is, is perceived and seen there, not so much in our part of the world. Uh, but deliverance ministry then is an attempt to, to cast out demons, to bring freedom and Christ's grace and freedom into the lives of people who are directly and habitually uh, uh, re- uh, repressed and, and overcome by Satan and his minions. That, as I've suggested, is is a complex area, a difficult area, and an area in which a lot of us don't have a great deal of experience, frankly. Uh, and in the West, you know, sometimes we just as soon forget about all those demons and all the list of authorities and powers and supernatural forces in heavenly places and so on. But this passage won't really allow us to do that. Uh, it's not so much that that, that they're absent from our lives as they're, they're working in more indirect and devious ways, but they are still decidedly at work. But it would be very natural, Eric, to look to this passage and say, okay, this is arguably the greatest passage in the Bible on the theme of the great controversy or cosmic conflict. So what does it tell us about spiritual warfare slash deliverance ministry? That would be a natural question, wouldn't it? It would. It yeah. would. So... When we, when we turn here to, to look at it, we say, well, on the one hand, there, there seems to be some acknowledgement here that believers actually confront supernatural evil powers. So the term that Paul uses here, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, wrestle implies rather close combat. And since wrestling was uh, used at the time in the Greco-Roman world as training for battle, it's entirely appropriate to use that term in a, in a battle context as part of a battle metaphor. But that implies, you know, kind of shoulder-to-shoulder, uh, uh, nose-to-nose conflict with the powers of darkness. And so in that sense, it might be uh, appropriate for someone to look to this passage as we look at it, though, in terms of principles for driving out demons from the lives of individuals and so on, there, there's precious little here that it really says directly on the topic. It portrays close engagement of believers against spiritual forces of evil, but Paul's emphasis really is on God's generous provision for victory through his presence and through his weaponry. And so there isn't a lot directly here. It doesn't Paul is not, is not really focused on that kind of, of ministry. Uh, having, having said that, it seems to me that the passage does offer some important principles and ideas that should inform any effort to release someone from the powers of, of darkness. So let me run through those, if I might. So, trusting in the Lord rather than in our own spiritual power to rescue Satan's captives. Our passage breathes in putting our faith and trust, not in our own selves, in our own power, our own ingenuity, our own wisdom, but resting on God's power and God's presence. I think that would certainly be a very appropriate lead principle. Acknowledging the need for God's provision for battle, trusting in the completed victory of Christ, uh, requesting and relying on the presence of the Spirit. If you're going to be tangling with the spirits, 
you want the Spirit to be present with you, verses 17 and 18, using the promises of God, the Word of God, verse 17, would be, I think, important. In other words, we would rely on the promises of God's Word. We might read them together, all expressed through prayer and supplication to God, trusting in the power of the Spirit to convey, interpret, and expand on our requests on behalf of the oppressed, praying at all times in the Spirit, verse 18, or to reflect on that wonderful passage in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. So while while it doesn't say a lot directly, it does seem to me that it has some, some important principles that we would want to take with us into any attempt to deliver someone from the powers of darkness. Good. And very, very nice counsel in, in helping to bring some things out. You mentioned here that there are some things that are not mentioned directly. Um, one thing that seems to be missing in this section of, of Paul's writing, which is surprising, is the answer to the question, where is Jesus? Because all through the book of Ephesians, we've seen Paul referencing Jesus over and over and over and over again. And it's, it's a, a book full of Jesus. And yet here we get to this very important section. Yes. And where is he? Yeah, Where so, is he? So more than 30 times in this letter, you know, Paul uses in Christ, by Christ, through Christ, in the beloved, and so on. It is a Christ-saturated letter. If this is really an appropriate conclusion to a Christ-saturated letter, where is Christ in this passage? And and as you look at it on the surface, there's none of those none of those prepositional phrases occur here. They, they're just they're just not here. Uh, however, I I don't think that the conclusion is defective, failing to reflect that central Christ-centered theme. Ephesians 6, verses 11 through 17, uh, work out that overarching thesis of verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And I would remind you that in Ephesians, Lord consistently refers to Jesus. So there he is, right at the outset in that overarching command, finally be strong in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the strength of his might. So putting on the head-to-toe armor of God is Paul's ultimate illustration of what it means to be in Christ, you see. Through their union with Christ, someone has written, believers share in his armor and have solidarity with him in battle. And so that overarching command and then this sense of solidarity with Christ in battle ensures that this is an appropriate Christ-focused conclusion to a Christ-saturated letter. Which probably shouldn't surprise us very much, but it is encouraging to be able to see that. And we hope that you have been encouraged this week as well, as we've spent some time taking a look at the call that we have to stand. How do we stand? We stand in Christ. With whom do we stand? We stand in Christ. He can give us the strength. He can give us the victory, regardless of the size or number of foes that we happen to be up against. That's encouraging message for us from Paul, from the Holy Spirit, through Paul to you and me. We look forward to seeing you again next week as we continue with just a couple more weeks in our journey through the book of Ephesians. This has been Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. It Is Written.